Acts chapter 2, uh, looking at uh, the first 13 verses of that chapter, if you've got a, uh, a physical Bible in front of you, uh, that's where we're coming from. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, Not all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Let's pray as we open up this part of the Bible together. Our Lord God, we ask that as we open up this part of your word, as we seek to understand it, understand you more deeply, We pray that you might encourage us and challenge us, that you might confront us and build us up and that we might look all the more like Jesus because of the good news of Acts chapter 2, we pray. Amen. Uh, One of my uh, friends, when he got uh, married, he was about six months into his marriage when Christmas came along and his wife thought that she would... Uh, su- surprise him with a kind of a special treat. And so early in the morning, she got up, snuck out of bed and uh, went down to the kitchen and cooked up uh, a big kind of feast of bacon and eggs and hash browns and halloumi. And she put it on this tray and she took it up to him and, and gave a massive cooked breakfast in bed. And he woke up and he just cried, just cried, and here is why, because for the last 26 years, he had a family tradition of every Christmas morning they did pancakes. I'm not sure what kind of rituals or rhythms or kind of your Christmas mornings are, but we all have these kind of family traditions or kind of systems, whatever it is. For some of you, it was leaving the church at this time on a Sunday morning. Now you've had to change that. Uh, Some of you didn't change that. You were here early. Uh, I'm still waiting to see if people will arrive at 10.45. We'll see. Uh, But for that, Ancient Jewish people, they had three big rhythms. 
three big festivals that were kind of the pillars of the year. So we have Easter and Christmas. They had three big festivals, the first of which was Passover. And at each of these pillars, each of these festivals, if if you could, the expectation was that you would travel from your homes, from far off lands, to, to travel into Jerusalem to gather together with God's people and to remember. And so every not you couldn't always afford it, so kind of every three or four years, every four or five years, maybe the family would have saved up enough to travel to Jerusalem for uh, a couple of these. And the big two were Passover, uh, where they remembered how God saved and redeemed, rescued them from Israel, uh, from Egypt, and how through the blood of the Lamb, death passed over them. And the second one was the festival of Pentecost, or the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost, see, we often think of the day of Pentecost as New Testament Christians where we think about what we read in Acts 2, but Pentecost was something before Acts chapter 2. It was a festival that the Jews would gather together where they would remember how God not only redeemed and delivered them from slavery, but that he provided and walked with them in the wilderness before the promised land. That he rescued them. But he didn't just rescue them and give them directions. He rescued them and then led them out through the wilderness, walked in the wilderness with them, that they, that he came down at Mount Sinai and was with them there before taking them into the promised land. And so the day of Pentecost for the Jewish, uh, the Jews at that time was a day to remember Sinai particularly and how God kind of came down in this mountain of fire and a whirlwind. And so we read in uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, and notice this, what happens? Suddenly the sound like a blowing like a, a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting in. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. And this is all happening on the day when they're meant to remember Exodus 19. In Exodus 19, Israel gathers together to the foot of Mount Sinai and God descends to the mountain. I tried to find a picture of it, but all of the pictures online were just terrible. If you're an artist, I'd love to chat to you. Uh, but in Exodus 19, they come to the foot of the Mount of Sinai and there is like a hurricane of smoke and fire and billowing wind that is consuming the mountain. So much so that Exodus 19 says that the mountain itself trembled and quaked. 
And so imagine kind of standing at the foot of that mountain and you, you're looking up and you're seeing this mountaintop and this cloud of smoke and lightning and fire billowing around, just surrounding and encompassing this mountain. Because that, because, and the reason why it was doing that was as a sign that the Lord had descended onto the mountain. And the Israelites, if you're there, you're kind of looking at this and you're thinking, how can I ever draw near to this? That's what I'd be thinking. I'd probably be thinking I need to change my underwear and then I would be thinking how can I ever draw near to this? As the mountain shakes and trembles and here a second Sinai experience happens that the billowing of a violent wind consumes the house, the room that they are sitting in, and fire kind of descends. But notice what is different. Notice that while the violent wind and fire engulfs the house and them, they are not consumed in the sense of destroyed. All through the Old Testament, there was this question that is, how is it that an imperfect people might be able to draw near to this holy and perfect God? All through the Old Testament, there is that question. How is it this this unholy, broken, sinful, messed up, frail, fickle people, can? how is it that we can draw near to this holy and perfect God? And they knew it had something to do with the sacrificial system, but they could never figure it out. How is it that they can draw near without being destroyed? And here, on the other side of the cross, they are consumed in some sense, engulfed by the presence of God, but They are not destroyed. The second thing to note is that always in the Old Testament, whenever God came and dwelt with his people, it was only ever for a temporary period of time and it was always in a general sense. So it was the burning bush, the pillar of fire out the front, descending to the temple, in the midst of the gathered crowd. But notice in chapter 2, notice verse 3, it says, what seemed to be tongues of fire separated. That, That didn't just kind of rest in the middle, but separated and came to rest on each of them. And in fact, the Greek is stronger still. In fact, the Greek kind of says, on each, every one of them. So 
that here the presence of God comes and personally dwells in and upon each one of them. And all of them, verse 4, are then filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, and they begin to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit enabled them. That they have been called to take the good news, the message of Jesus' death and resurrection on behalf of guilty people, that they have been told to bring that good news, to speak of that wondrous salvation to the ends of the earth. Go to far off countries, distant people groups. And here, the Spirit of God is both equipping them and transforming them to do the very work, the very task he has called them to do. And this is good news. It's great news because you and I have been called to the same task, to make disciples of all nations, including the nation of Gosford, to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And you kind of go, how can I do that? Here is how. Because God never calls us to do something that he never, that he doesn't equip us then to do. That here the disciples are both equipped and transformed to do the very work, the very task with which he has called them to do. That is why we see them preaching with boldness. This is why we see them caring for widows, healing the lame, giving hope to the hopeless, granting forgiveness to the burdened, practicing radical generosity, extending costly grace. This is why the disciples in the book of Acts are both recognizable and unrecognizable from who they were beforehand. And here's what I know from, like, I've only been here about a year, but from conversations I've had and from people I've chatted to, here's what I know. Some of you are are so close in some areas of your life to throwing hope away. with sins that you have struggled with, battles that you have fought and lost a hundred times. That many of you feel beaten and overcome by areas of your life, your anger, your struggle with pornography or alcohol, your bitterness or laziness or selfishness. I 
that you feel like these things are just unbeatable. Yeah, I've tried fighting it. I've tried changing, but I just keep slipping back. I can't beat it. But see how the disciples are transformed by the Spirit of God. See how the disciples are transformed by the Spirit of God. And they are transformed not because of their own strength of will, but by his power and his willingness. It, it is okay, like it's actually a healthy thing to recognize the weakness of yourself. In fact, any kind of counseling for addiction will, will do this, right? AA, the first step is actually recognizing that you're an addict. The second step is realizing that, um, that you are unable to beat this by yourself. And that is actually the secret to then making progress. Not, I'm going to tie up my bootstraps and just grip my teeth and, and we're going to tackle this. But by relinquishing the strength, by recognizing your weakness, but by not doubting his strength or his desire to work on those things in you. We are talking about men and women who betrayed and abandoned Jesus, men and women who practice racism and judgmentalism, that we are talking about men and women who then became instruments, tools of grace to transform the world, that have become some of the most influential people in human history. I um, can't put it better than C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild it. At first, you can understand what he's doing, getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You know that those jobs need doing and so you're not surprised. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The answer is he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out, throwing in a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into dazzling, radiant, immortal creatures as we cannot now imagine. 
a bright stainless mirror in which God reflects back to himself his own boundless power, delight and glory. The process will be long and in parts painful, but that is exactly what we are in for. Nothing less. Nothing less. The disciples are filled with the Spirit and the Spirit so transforms them to do the work he has called them to do. Not just that, but he equips them to speak. You see, at Pentecost, the empowerment of all individuals, right? Everyone equipped, not just the 12 disciples, not just the paid professionals, right? Um, uh, I love speaking. You might have gathered that. Some of you are like, what are we coming at now? 18 minutes? Uh, some of you are like, I, I, I love speaking. I do. I love preaching. It's, it's kind of one of my favorite things. But the idea in the Bible that preaching and speaking the word of God is for the paid professional, that everyone comes and gathers just to listen to the guy that's employed, is not there. I know a preacher who some guy came up to him after the sermon and said, I could do what you do. It's not that hard. You just read from the Bible and then told people what it said. You know what his response was? Yeah, do it. Yeah, you should do it. That's that's exactly what it is, right? Like, Sometimes we go, how did you do that? Here's what you do. You read it and you just go, what does this say and why do they need to hear it? That's all. Keep paying me, please. We need to eat. I'm not trying to get out of a job here, but like, but if it meant like, that's what this is, right? You have the word of God and the spirit of God and that is enough. The pattern in the book of Acts, if you read the book of Acts, you get this phrase that appears again and again and again and again. And the phrase forms the pattern, the rhythm, the cadence for the book of Acts. And that is, and they had the word of God and the spirit of God and the, and the church grew. That where the word of God is and the spirit of God is, the church grows. And this is, is 1 Peter 4, right? 1 Peter 4.11 says, If anyone speaks, if anyone speaks, speak as one who is speaking the very words of God. And I don't think he's talking about preaching. I think he's talking about when you're sitting at the coffee shop, and you see someone crying on the table next to you by themselves. And you kind of weigh out, do I say something, do I not? And you kind of lean over and you go, excuse me, I don't, I don't mean to impose, but are you okay? 
I think he's talking about after church when you're having morning tea and as you're having conversations. I think he's he's talking about when you're at the pub with uh, your footy mates. He's talking about when you're at uni or when you're at work and how you interact with people. As you are having as as you speak, if anyone speaks, speak as one who is speaking the very words of God. So as you're having these conversations, think, okay. If I, if, how can I speak in such a way that that person will hear me speaking and be like, wow, it's almost as if, if God was in the room that this is what he would be saying to me. And that is scary. And yet, notice verse four that it is as the spirit enables them. That you are not sent out alone. You are not unequipped. And so they speak. And as this whirlwind happens and as they start speaking, Jews from all different nations kind of gather together. Remember, like I said, they're there for the festival. Verse 5. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Notice Luke's kind of point there, right? When they heard this, a sound came. uh, When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. Because why? Because they're thinking about Sinai, and because each one of them heard in their own language, they heard their own language being spoken. And then we get that list from verse 9 of all the different places, locations, languages. And you go, why did Luke write this list? Here's why. The last time we get a list like this is at the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, humanity gathered together in arrogance and with one language sought to build a tower up to God for their own glory. And as part of the punishment, the curse, God scattered them. God scattered them and gave them many tongues and languages. And what we see here at Pentecost in Acts 2 is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. We see God is gathering together people. He is not scattering. He is gathering together people. And the barrier that is language is being broken down. That the curse of Babel is being undone. And that people are from all nations, that the Spirit is drawing to himself, people from all different walks of life, countries, nationalities. I bet Joe wishes that that would happen at ESL. Sorry, easy conversation on Friday mornings, right? There is this idea sometimes that Christianity is the enemy of multiculturalism. That Christianity is something that imposes itself on other cultures and makes them Western. 
And yet nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, what a few people have noted is that when you compare the world's largest religions, overwhelmingly the majority of, in the overwhelming majority, the followers are still in their countries of origin. And so what I mean by that is Islam uh, is still largely, most of their followers are still in the Middle East. That Hinduism and Buddhism, most of their followers are in their respective countries of origin of, of India and Asia. That Confucianism has penetrated little outside of the Far East. And yet, by contrast, Christianity was first dominated by the Jews in Jerusalem, then dominated by the Hellenists in the Mediterranean, later received by the barbarians in northern Europe, then it moved to North America. Most of its followers today now live in Africa, Latin America and Asia. And if Christianity continues to grow at the rate it's growing at in China, in 30 years' time the prediction is that 30% of China will be Christian. that the idea that Christianity is just going away is simply not true or that it is the enemy of multiculturalism is not true. The Spirit of God is drawing together people from all different walks of life, all different countries and nations in their own languages. And we get to be part of that. We do. We get to be part of that because God is drawing people from all different nations here to Gosford. And these Christians in Jerusalem then go out and they start planting churches. They're the seed to the, all the ends of the earth. That's why when Paul and Peter and, and others go out, when Thomas goes to Africa, you know what he finds there? A church. Why? Because one of these men or women went, planted a church. And we get to be part of it together. Let's pray. Our God and King, we pray that you might continue to equip us and transform us in all the ways that you would so that we might do all the things you would have us to do. And we pray this for the glory of Jesus and for our joy. Amen.